Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most probably listening through a pair of headphones, which means I have the perfect sponsor with the perfect product for you. It's Studio, and they want to revolutionize the way people see headphones. Generally, fashionable headphones tend to lack the proper sound quality and the high-tech ones are bulky and not design-orientated. Studio bridged that gap while emphasizing sleek, modern Scandinavian design. To get a 15% discount on any of their wares, go to studiosweden.com, which is spelled S-U-D-I-O Sweden.com, and simply put in the code DTD when purchasing a pair of headphones. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. In an uncertain world, there is always music which can be listened to in good company. Welcome to Friday, the show where we speak to friends and interesting people to the backdrop of great music. Today we speak to Shannon Badram, the internet's most sought-after certified educator, dating expert and lifestyle personality about the changing attitudes to beauty, colorism and our work as a sex educator. Today's show marks a little bit of a change to Friday 15. The interviews will now be longer and the tone will be a little bit more intimate. I think I've discovered that after 60 odd shows that it's not my job to interview but to share the subject matter not only with my guest but also with you, the listener. I hope you enjoy this new Friday. Shannon, is it true that we're living through a change in perceptions of Western beauty? It's not all blonde hair, blue-eyed and and big boobs anymore. Thanks to people like Jennifer Lopez and the Kardashians, butts or bums have stolen the spotlight from boobs. I think you're right. I have no prize for you, but I think you're right. Uh, I absolutely think that we are witnessing a a shift, but it's, it's happened slowly and I think it's happening hopefully in the right direction. Obviously, we've seen some extreme results of especially like the butt boom. Um, But Mm -hmm. nonetheless, I think it's opening it up to a different, we're just passing the torch a little. I think even in terms of eyebrow shape, I've seen a shift in what used to be normal and what, you know, is now applauded and even the way that makeup is, is applied. So I think it all just affirms that beauty truly is a social construct. And it really is about uh, what we are satur- what message we receive the most. That's what gets the the highest rate rating of approval. And it's really not about who's born more beautiful or or who has the right to beauty. It really is who the media decides is their front page cover person this month. I saw this really impassioned article uh, discussion, sorry, about Black Panther, and it went along the lines of the cultural importance of this isn't just the fact that it's a black superhero flick. Because when a little child looks at somebody who's heroic, they want to look at themselves. And when they see people who are all of one type, 
ultimately what it's saying is these people are not only heroic but also they are ideal and ideal means beautiful and so um using the black panther just as as a totem of change i think for me being being black absolutely is important not just because it's black people on screen but also black dark skinned black women and someone like denai guerrero is seen as being a beautiful woman of which let's say in mainstream western let's say white culture she wouldn't have let's say 20 years ago black women with very dark skin tones kind of like great jo- grace jones was seen as a one off or let's say naomi campbell there was one or two examples but they weren't seen as the norm No, I think it's absolutely correct. I had this really profound experience uh for New Year's Eve. We go, I live in LA, so we go on night night hikes. Um so we trek up one of the several hills over here and just ring off the new year on top. And we went with a friend of mine who was a white male, and as we're walking up this hill at night, he said, "I feel like I'm about to go take over a village and like just conquer the world. And we're like, wow, like in the back of our minds, we're like I feel like we're running away from something. And that just was mm-hmm. so powerful to me of like how media influences your perception of self. And so every time I've seen a movie of someone who looks similar to me traveling in the night, it's because they're fleeing or they're hiding. And whenever he's seen a movie of someone traveling in the night, it's because they're about to go conquer. And it's those subtle things that we didn't you know pay attention to, but that do shift our psyche and our perception of our ourself and of our potential. And I think the the beauty standard is just a 100% obvious one. I went to a school a few years ago and I was talking about beauty constructs and I asked it was a, a black class. Uh, it was a, uh, not a black school in particularly, but it was a black neighborhood. But majority of the girls, it was a, they had ha- brought all the girls only into this uh, workshop. Majority of the girls were were young black girls, one young dark skin black girls. And I asked them to create the most beautiful person by attributing different body parts from different celebrities that they could list. And everyone had a chart paper and they drew, you know, Angelina Jolie's lips and JLo's butt and um, Iggy Azalea's hair, whatever it is that they put together. But no one referenced someone who looked like them or a body part of someone who looked like them. And I think how striking that was for me to realize that either you're not getting examples of this or when you are getting these examples, they're not being praised enough or reinforced frequently enough. So you exclude yourself from the beauty narrative because you see yourself excluded in media so often. And it's just for anybody who hasn't experienced that, uh it might be difficult for them to understand because it comes second nature. If you've if you are a white person or and you see your story told and you see your beauty affirmed constantly, you see your hair affirmed constantly, it might feel like, well, I don't necessarily like define my beauty based on media. Well, you don't have to because it's already done for you. So I I think it's difficult to deny that that's not true. Exactly what you just said. Mm. Uh, one of the first times in my life when I was really aware that I wasn't seeing myself and of course at the age of like 8 you don't phrase it in that way but as a little kid I was quite a good artist and I'd always draw my own superheroes and they always were let's say Captain Birmingham my hometown of Birmingham in England or I don't know but I always drew white superheroes you know this was the 1970s but I always drew them and my uncle just said why don't you draw a black superhero and my head literally exploded because <laughs> i was incredibly confused because there weren't any we weren't heroic but time times have moved on times have moved on it's kind of interesting that you said um about the body parts that these black girls did uh, to create their kind of their frankenstein version but in a good way of the ideal 
woman. We've talked about uh, the rise of the book, at least we mentioned it. Can we can we talk about body parts and how um, perceptions of of that have actually changed in, let's say, in the last kind of 10 years or so? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I'd be an expert in terms of like having a reference point of, you know, I don't have my finger on the pulse of what's beautiful now and popular and trends. I know Allure magazine... And- anecdotal stuff is is good here yeah i think we you know i mean I, the trends that i know right now like the focus is on thicker brows it's everyone's wearing fake eyelashes and it's that big eyelash look and the big eyes and we're still in the full lip phase um people still want smaller noses though and it's the most chiseled cheekbones possible and that hollow underneath it so we're contouring to get that it's hair now i think has switched from being bone straight to wavy not definitely mm-hmm. not you know curly or kinky, but a nice natural full bodied wave. So we're moving in a more inclusive direction, but still nonetheless, it's still most people who would be able to achieve that hair pattern are are Caucasian people, um, or Asian people, or East Asian people. And then it's the body type I think is getting a little fuller. We're looking for a bigger chest, uh, and it's proportions that for a lot of people maybe aren't attainable. It's the larger chest, the larger butt, the really small hips. Um, so you think about who the ideal you know, the, the Kardashians mold themselves into what the ideal, if you want to look at like, what are the trends right now in, in beauty, they, they purchase not, and I don't, I'm not a Kardashian shamer or Jenner shamer, but amongst them, they all get the latest update of, of what's out right now. And we have a lot of people and that, that's on Instagram as well, too. There's a lot of people you can look at if you're kind of curious as to what the trends are in terms of body parts, there are people who keep up with it like fashion. Fashions don't just change uh, within the wider uh, kind of community society, but also within races. And kind of the, one of the things which people of whether West Indian or African American origin are aware of is kind of colorism within our community. Mm-hmm. Could could you speak to that and and kind of ex- explain because you are fairer skin than me. How would you describe colorism, complexion issues to somebody who was non-black? It's essentially the black community is inclusive. It's wide. It's not a monolith. There are several different cultures. There are different languages. And then as a result, there's also different shades. And especially in America, there was the introduction of like the one drop rule that if you were just mixed with any kind of black, you were considered black in the eyes of society. And that might have petered off slightly because you do have people like Lionel Richie's daughter uh, who is mixed with black but looks very white. And I don't know if she necessarily identifies herself as a black woman per se, but they're definitely, especially people who have some type of visible identity in the black community, will just get pushed in that direction. And I think that the what happens as a result of that is you've got a race that is based on color that has every color in it whether it's someone who's lighter than me or as light as me or someone um, who's as dark or darker than Lapita. And when you have that, there's this confusion of, well, one voice can't speak for all. And I think it's the, um, the fight for what is black, what is beautiful, and who gets to, to, to speak the loudest and who gets to, um, to stand in that soapbox for the community, even though our experiences may be vastly different. But I'd, I'd love to hear your definition of this. Um, what, what do, how would you describe colorism? I think throughout the West Indies, which is where my folks originated from in the island of Jamaica, 
and it's pretty much standard throughout the world. But I'm talking about specifically what I know. If you are a fairer skin, you're seen as being of a higher caste. And in the West Indies, there was the one drop rule in terms of law in the way that there was within the United States. But it definitely held it was those slaves which were defended from the slave masters and invariably did work in the house, in the home. So uh, because they were seen as being, in inverted commas, more beautiful. And how that kind of touched on me and touches on me and, and my circumstance, my family. My mother is very fair for a black woman and actually has green eyes. And I remember being about 10 when I realised my mum looks strange for a black person. It struck me one day, I was looking at her in the mirror. And my mother was always really cognizant of the fact that my father's mother never liked her because mm. she was too fair-skinned for her. You know, it's something which my mum didn't tell me until, I don't know, I was about 30 or so. But she says, you know, the reason why your grandmother never liked me, she always says, I was too fair. And my father, her husband, should have got a darker complexion woman, which is kind of going against the norm. You know, that basically fair skin was supposed to be good back then. But there you go. There you right. Go. That, that, yeah, that's, that's a really excellent point. Um, at this point, Shannon, I'm supposed to do a really neat segue onto talking about the piece of music that my guest has picked. And I haven't done a neat segue. It's been incredibly blatant. I've just gone, bang, we're going to talk about skin colour into this piece of music. Now, I've got to say hats off to you and props, because most people, when they uh, choose their piece of music, have something which I think they play a little bit safe with, but you haven't. So tell us about Chelly and Took the Night and why you've chosen it for us this week on Friday 15. I think whenever you're having discussions about beauty who does and doesn't qualify there's inevitably going to be someone who's listening who feels like that's me who is excluded from this narrative or that's me whether you are on the dark or the light side or whatever it is like a friend of mine um came to LA recently for pilot season and she was saying that she met with her managers and she's mixed with Chinese and white and her managers told you like her told her that right now it's really hard to pitch you because people are looking for non-mixed so if they're looking for asian they just want someone who is asian they don't want someone who's mixed with asian if looking for black they want somebody you know who is black and so not a mixed person and as much as that it's a beautiful thing because it's a shift in power and it's necessary and people need to see themselves and the majority of a population probably isn't um isn't the mixed version of that population it also does exclude that person from opportunities and it can get tougher it's tough on all sides and it's very sensitive so i like this song because it's like no matter what you are, are right now or how you're feeling or these discussions are, are bound to make you uncomfortable just have the attitude of like you're the shit you're awesome you're incredible you take every room that you walk into and not because you are uh, privileged but because you are you are special um and you're special in your own right so that's why i chose this
better than me, better than me. None of these chicks look better than me. One, two, four, three. None of these chicks look better than me, better than me, better than me. None of these chicks look better than me. One, two, four, three. None of these chicks look better than me, better than me, better than me. None of these chicks look better than me. One, two, four, three. None of these chicks look better than me, better than me, better than me. So Shannon, am I to presume that you're a bit of a, a club girl? Like you like your house music as well as, let's say, other forms of dance music? I would say I'm an audiobook girl, and that piece of music is so old that that just references, like, when you ask about what, whenever people ask me for music, I start to go into a cold sweat because I'm like, do I tell them Michael Jackson? Like, my music choices <laughs> are so outdated. Um, this one I just heard along the way somewhere, but I definitely would never refer to my, that's why I got so up in arms and you were like talking about music and I was like, oh my gosh, please don't make this an attribution for me as a musician. Cause like me and music are, are very, uh, unfamiliar with each other. I don't know if I believe that. Right. Because we, we, we all have ears, right. And we can feel music. When, what's the last piece of music, which absolutely moved you? And if you can't remember the, the name of the piece of music, just describe it. Oh my gosh, absolutely moved me. See, I don't even, yeah, I don't even have a, a reference for this. I mean, I'm going to go with the Frank Ocean album. That was a, a, probably a year ago, mm-hmm. but that was definitely uh, just just so much rawness to it. I just like vulnerability. I like feeling, and so I look for music. And that's why I tend to gravitate more towards older music. Because it's not about BPMs or riding the beat or finding a hot beat. A lot of times it's very uh, percussive or people's voices are an instrument as opposed to uh, the driving force of the song. It's like a piece of the puzzle. So I like music where it's just, it's not perfect, but it's just so raw and real. And I think Frank is one of the few artists that, that provides that experience still. I bored my kids rigid. Is 2011, they flew over from Canada and Swim Good, the Frank Ocean track. Um, I just absolutely loved that. For me, that was totally kind of immersive and it was uh, the sound the sound of then. And I think his stuff in particular has aged incredibly well. And one of the things which I totally applaud him about is coming out and being honest about his sexuality, which is not is not necessarily that easy. It's getting much easier, which shows you how things have moved so fast in terms of gender identity and sexuality and being open about it. But as a black man, as a black man who's in the eye and a black American man to come out and say that you are gay is something which, um, you know, it's got to be applauded. But we shouldn't be applauding people for being honest about who they find attractive when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue nile.com you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door go to blue nile.com and use promo code listen to get 50 dollars off your purchase of 500 dollars or more that's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You absolutely fascinate me, Shannon. And what we haven't talked about, though we've talked about beauty, is the fact that you are 
Um, what exactly would you even call yourself? Are you a sexologist? Are you somebody who, uh, are you um, a pundit who is well-versed about um, dating and sex and moral mores? Who exactly are you and what, how have you arrived at being such um, a force, a, a person who is well-versed in uh, the topic that, dare I say, we all have some interest in? Yeah, as, as certified as a sexologist, so it's a comfortable term. I think intimacy expert, content creator definitely is a reflection of me as well, too. Um, I've been in this space now for 12 years as a sexual educator and branching out recently into dating and relationships. And I've been creating content for 10 years, so that, that feels comfortable for me as well, too. It just really was, you know, a good friend of mine, Melanie Fiona, who's a, a spectacular singer, speaking of which, but she was saying to me that a lot of the times we often think about our life moving forward, like we're trying to become something. And most oftentimes it's really about going back, going back to your early innocence, your early care, carefree nature and your early drives. Like what were you really passionate about as a kid? What did you really love to do? And along the way, maybe you lost your passion because you were encouraged in a certain path. Maybe your parents did a job that they would have preferred you to do instead. And for me, I've always been really interested in like love relationships and, and sexuality from a really young age. Like I always say my, my Barbies were banned from being naked at five years old because they never had clothes on. It just was always like, they're always just making out naked. Um, so I just think it was a natural area of interest for me that it took me a while to find my way back to it. But it now that I am fully in the space and I'm unapologetic in it, it's just one of the most effortless things I've done. Even though you were always interested in sex and attraction, um, was, was, was there any point where, let's say, you were a little bit ashamed about it? Hell yeah. Hell yeah. I mean, I definitely went through complete waves. And it, it probably really isn't until maybe three years ago that I really fully embraced this role in the space. I put out a book. This is the first thing I did. It took me four years to get it published. And when I did, over those course of four years, I'd, had, I'd done all the healing that I needed to do, to do at, that, you know, at, at that age in my life. And I'd learned a lot of information. So when the book came out, I was like, well, I don't actually know if I need to be this person anymore. And I had a full-time job. And so putting out a book about sex was in some ways very embarrassing for me and embarrassing for my family. And so I tried to like water down my message or water down my role. And I took some time of just being a little confused of like, well, how do I navigate this space without being known as the sex girl? And I took on people's fears of like, well, I don't want to be approached in the street and asked about lube flavors. I don't want to be approached in the street and someone, you know, flash me and ask if their penis looks normal, which has never happened to me in either case. <laughs> but I definitely, like, you know, carried the fear that my parents would have had about it. And it did take me, a and that's why I'm very patient with people who are not completely open sexually or not ready to do that. Cause I'm like, who am I to judge you? You know, I'm immersed in this field and I've talked to the best and I've been around the best and I've read the books and it still took me this long. So for someone who's only casually interested in just tipping their toe in, it may take you triple or quadruple the time. And that's okay. Like we're all really fighting a lot of social stigmas that make it very difficult to be your best and truest self in this field. And if it takes you longer, I'm, I'm patient with that. So Whenever people attack me for what I do or I'm met with a lot of resistance, I just look at that like, man, you know, I can really relate to you because maybe, you know, six years ago, I wasn't so dissimilar from you. Maybe I wouldn't have 
spoken out as negatively, uh, but I may have shared the same thoughts that you're voicing. So I don't really have a lot of judgment for people who aren't, you know, prepared to make videos about their open relationship and prepared to go out there and make jokes about lube. It's just, um, I, I think it's, it's a beautiful spectrum and, and it's a great journey no matter where you're at. So be, be patient with yourself. Maybe I'm sat in a liberal bubble, says the guy who's living in San Francisco in the, in the Bay Area. So absolutely I am. But who in this world of self-publishing, of self-democratization of thought is attacking you for talking about something that we all do? Oh my gosh, so many people. I mean, I could pull up comments right now. I think, especially if I show up in spaces where that's not, I mean, I'm very accustomed to exactly what you're talking about. And I went to school in San Francisco as well. So I have been surrounded. And it's also very normal for me when people, when I say I talk about sex for a living, I'm a sexologist. And people are like, what is that? I'm like, I forget. Because to me, that's like saying plumber, because I know so many people like Mm -hmm. that. So I was on The View, for example. And that was a time when I'm like, oh, this is not my usual community at all. And it was so much resistance. It was so much questions and, you know, really judgmental questions. And I reminded myself like, oh, I'm really accustomed just to exactly said I live in this bubble of people who think like me, or if they don't think exactly like me, they at least have, they replace uh, disgust with fascination, but some people don't. So I'm, I think whenever I show up in environments that people aren't looking for, you know, sex positive content or intimate in education, intimacy education, that's when you receive a lot of pushback. So give us a couple of commonly held misconceptions about, uh, about sex. I think the biggest misconception is that it's linear or that there is a normal narrative um, or that most people aren't. You know, a lot of people, most people don't fantasize. Most people um, don't have thoughts about anyone other than their, their sexual partner. Most people don't have a fetish. Most people don't masturbate more than once a month or whatever it is. Like, There's some storyline that we've all been told of this vanilla person who has a high sex drive but isn't very kinky. Uh, has a sex drive only for their partner, doesn't fantasize about anyone else, doesn't want to watch porn, and is comfortable if their partner doesn't want to have sex for years at a time, and just has this libido that they can turn off and on, and it's extremely vanilla, and it's nothing that, you know, we haven't seen on late night TV. That's the narrative I think that we all share of the normal sexual person, and I just, I haven't really even met that person. When I talk to people intimately about their lives and, um, they're in the ins and outs of their sexuality. It, I don't know that person that, that well. So I think that lie being told a lot allows a lot of people to feel shame and quiet and have to do a lot of coaching of themselves to even allow themselves to experience pleasure because their pleasure is overshadowed by so much guilt and so much feelings of inadequacy. So the major thing is that you're doing it wrong that your pleasure is wrong. And I actually went on the the view, for example, and I was saying that I'm like, I, I really do boast a pleasure based lifestyle. And I think you should seek out pleasure in all that you do. And even like, if you're going to the DMV, find a way to make a fun game, stroke your arm while you're there. Like remind yourself of something funny. You can still enjoy yourself in the moment Like you have this wonderful life to live. And yes, there's filled with things that aren't perfect. But if you always prioritize pleasure, you can just make the world, I think a lot Uh, easier for yourself and also allows you more energy to make it easier for others 
And the host was like, I don't agree with that at all. I just don't agree. Like you shouldn't be talking about pleasure, people going around and just pleasing themselves. And, you know, people have responsibilities. They have families. And I'm like, girl, like, why is your pleasure a bad thing? You know, why in your mind is your, does you feeling good mean that you're hurting others, one, or two, that you're like impinging on others' potential of feeling good? So there's this idea that, well, pleasure is irresponsible and pleasure is bad and choosing pleasure makes you um, like a, a low hanging fruit human. I think there's a, that's another thing that I think I'd, I would definitely like, like to fix if I, if I could. Do you think maybe you could have been a woman of letters and maybe you'd have to um, give yourself a, a, a nom de plume and give yourself a male name, but maybe you missed your calling and you should have been born a couple of hundred years ago, the late 18th century. You know, you could have been there with, uh, you know, writing about pleasure with, I'll say the market is sad, but that has other connotations now, sadism and stuff. But he was a great, he was a libertine. He was somebody who loved pleasure for pleasure's sake. Or let's say Casanova. Right, yeah. Yeah. So could you see yourself in a powdered wig uh, back 200 <laughs> years ago? You know, one of, one of those uh, dresses with the really wide hips, you know, in the court of, let's I say, think... Louis the Sixteenth, being, you know, a lady talking about pleasure all day long. You know, I just, I really have no, like, history fetishes or, like, I you know people are like, I just, I'm obsessed with the 40s. I just love my life. I'm so grateful and in my purpose and in living a life of, of pleasure and joy and um, I'm able to help others. And so I just can't imagine myself at any other time. And I think, you know, having the access that we have today and, you know, to bring things full circle to even what the beauty story is, is that the reason why the beauty narrative is shifting is because people now have the programmer in their own hands. You know, the remote control isn't just 20 channels you can choose from. It's an infinite possibility of material you can select. And people aren't choosing the standard image that has been chosen for so many years. And every country is choosing their own, you know, version and, and the people that we have the power. So I don't even know if I, if I necessarily, you know, would have had an opportunity to have a voice and especially, you know, based on race back in those times. So I get it. And maybe for Halloween, but you know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to put it out there. I'm, I'm, I'm good in this, in this decade. All right. Just as we start to wrap, wrap things up, are you shockable? Um, you know what I was actually saying today, I'm, I'm, I'm immune to awkwardness, but I don't know if I'm, I'm definitely like, I scare easily. Like, I don't watch horror movies. So I I'm would assume. I'm talking I, about zombie movies. I'm, I'm on about if somebody, you know, you're talking to somebody, whether it's for research purposes or for program uh, purposes. So it's within your wheelhouse of talking about attraction and sex and sexuality. Can you be shocked by what somebody says to you? So I went to this school in uh, San Francisco. It's called the Institute for Advanced Study of Human Sexuality. And we had this course we had to take that was called SAR, which is Sexual Attitude Readjustment. And it's a 40-hour course where they just expose you to everything, all different kinds of fetishes and kinks and different ways of life and different ways that people find to connect um, and to experience pleasure. And the goal of it is, is at the end of it, someone can tell you anything and you'll be like, oh, okay. Um, so... I've definitely gotten still like some that are outside of the norm. And I, I don't want to say shock. I, I'm fascinated. You know, I'm like, what's well, fascinating. I have never heard that before. I never thought about it in that way. And I can see how that might make sense. So I don't know if I don't think I could be shocked because I think of shock as a negative thing. Um, surprised. I think surprised. 
fascinated and um, there's, I'm always learning. Don't get me wrong. I think that's what makes this career so awesome is that I'm not remotely at the been there, heard it all, tried that, had the postcard, like holla at me. I'm just still constantly learning and, and finding new information. And I honestly feel like I've just been in this industry for, for a, a few months. Like I feel like a fetus um, in comparison for how much information there really is out there. So I'm not a know-it-all by any means, and I'm, I'm always learning. So I guess in that right, I'm definitely shockable. All right, so let, let's just quantify this just before, just before we say goodbye. Right? You've been in this field for how many years now, academically and then professionally? So I started when I was 19. I'm 32 now. Whatever the math is with that. Yeah, 10, that's 11, 13 12. years, 13 years. Okay, there um, we go, somewhere right, in there. So what's the last thing that you learned about the world of sex and sexuality? What's the last new thing you say categorically, didn't know that, I've learned that? That the largest plus success in placebo drugs came with the female Viagra. So 40% of people who took the sugar pill noted that they had improved sex drive. And that's like the highest of any drug test that's ever happened before. And what 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 were our minds doing to us, or doing to those women that took that drug? Well, it's just one of those things. Just let you know that like desire really is so much in your in your mind. If you expect to be hornier, if you expect that you're supposed to want sex more, or you just put yourself in an environment too because you're like, well, I'm taking this pill, so maybe you're making extra efforts. Like you will see results. So I think it just should affirm for a lot of people that your sexuality is a lot more in your control than you think, and it's um, definitely not hopeless. Shannon, thank you for coming on to Friday 15 and taking much more than 15 minutes to tell us that the most uh, important vital sex organ is our brain, our own imagination. Thank you. Oh, thank you. You're awesome. I love you. Let me stop the recording. I need to remind you that we are part of the Agora Podcast Network. It's a network of some 25 independently produced podcast so why don't you go to agorapodcastnetwork.com and um, go and search out a brand new podcast for your podcasting ears this month our podcast of the month is beyond the big screen by Stephen guerra so if you want to know the true stories behind your favorite movies the real facts and the background are often much more interesting and complex than you might think um, Stephen interviews people who are incredibly passionate about a specific film or a genre there are great interviews so why don't you take a listen to Behind the Big Screen on a podcatcher of your choice. New Orleans was the home of not only my grandfather, but is the place where pet fangs, the purveyors of this kind of sultry kind of wash your underwear soul, hail from. Afterglow is an example of their darkly groove-ridden music. It mixes down-tempo beats with colourful guitar stabs and falsetto vocals to create a mash of intoxicating sounds.
feedback if you want to email me and possibly even get on the show you can do that by emailing me at royfield at gmail.com you can find me on twitter um, i'm not great on the platform but i am at royfield on twitter and of course you can go all the way over to facebook and you can find friday 15 there oh one last thing be awesome if you could write us a little bit of a review on iTunes or on a podcatcher of your choice. See you all again in seven days' time on another Friday. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.